Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, Jake Galdo welcomes Susan Cornell to discuss advances in diabetes management. This podcast is super practical and includes great takeaways in caring for our patients with diabetes and prediabetes. Let's listen in. Welcome to another episode of the Game Changers Podcast. This is all about pharmacotherapy updates to help you uh, optimize care for your patients. Uh, as you can tell by my voice, I am not your regular host, Jeff Wall. I am the guest host for today's episode, joined by my friend and colleague, Susan Cornell. Susan is an expert in diabetes management, and she is here to, to really shed some light on what's, what's going on within, within the diabetes guidelines in the world of diabetes and pharmacotherapy. And it's kind of interesting. I, I love our, our American Diabetes Association guidelines. They, they are this, this uh, yearly uh, review that I get to read every holiday season. It's a nice little thing to, to kick up your feet and read during the, the fireside. Uh, though I'm down here in Alabama, so we actually don't do fireside, but Susan's up there in the north, so she definitely does the fireside aspect of everything. And it's wonderful because they help you understand what's changed in the world of diabetes. Now, we are recording this very near to when those are getting released, but we have Susan to join us earlier than that because things have been changing. And I think what's, what's really cool about the diabetes guidelines is not just have they been updated every year for the last, I don't know, decade or more, but they've actually now shifted to being a, a living document. They're this document that evolves over time, within time. Um, this is getting very sci-fi-esque. It's almost like uh, the bad guy for the Guardians of the Galaxy 3 that people will be watching later this year. Uh, the high evolution, right? So it's, it's the evolution of our guidelines to the point that it's no longer a static update once a year, but it's a living update throughout the year. So Susan, welcome to the podcast and help everybody understand this version of evolution with the guidelines. Like what the heck's happening? Why are you on now when, when you could be with us again in like two weeks? Yes. And, and Jake, thanks for having me. And yes, I'd love to be on again in two weeks. But, you know, it is interesting because as we get more real time information and it's really technology, you know, technology is driving the future of diabetes and it's really making some positive impacts for us as we uh, help manage our people with diabetes. But, you know, as we know, earlier this year in, in well, technically last year, late December of 2021, early January, 2022, the standards of care come out, which as you already mentioned, you know, that fireside reading. And yes, you know, we're expecting snow this weekend in the Chicago area. So, um, you know, the fireplace could be going there. Uh, but anyway, it's, you know, again, it's everything about diabetes and it's the standards of care. And usually it's about 15, 16, 17 chapters uh, of a publication. And it goes with what changes are being made, again, help people with diabetes. But what's interesting is as we get more clinical data, and you know as well as I do back in 2008, when the FDA wanted more cardiovascular outcome trials with these newer medications coming out, you know, at first we thought, oh my gosh, this is a cumbersome work for, for getting drug processed approved and into the hands of people. But now we're starting to look at all of the data we received from that. And as I'm sure folks know, over the past few years, you know, metformin was hanging on by a thread, I like to say, as first-line therapy. But, you know, up until now, it was upon diagnosis, people were put on metformin usually, and then very quickly added to an agent that helped reduce uh, you know, ASCVD, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, 
or reduce the risk of heart failure or chronic kidney disease. So, you know, we started focusing beyond just managing glucose, which again, there is no such thing as a person with just diabetes. We have to look at that. You know, diabetes is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So anyone with diabetes, we should be looking at their cardiovascular risk. Um, people with heart failure, you know, they're more likely to have diabetes. And of course, diabetes is a big risk factor for chronic kidney disease. So rather than just looking at sugar, we have to look at the EGFR and, you know, again, their lipids, their hypertension, smoking status, weight, obesity. Obesity is a diabetes risk factor, but it's also a cardiovascular risk factor. So with that, what's happening now is these medication guidelines because of the data coming from those cardiovascular outcome trials, the medication guidelines are changing very rapidly. And in early October this year, right after the combined ADA and then EASD, which is the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. So those two big groups got together and really this is where the new guidelines came out because they had a joint consensus statement that bottom line, metformin is no longer first line therapy. I'm gonna say it again, cause I can, and I've been waiting for this for a long time, but metformin is no longer first line therapy. And I think that's what's really exciting because now we can start to treat what's really going on with the patient. And we wanna look at, again, those independent risk factors of cardiovascular disease, heart failure, kidney disease, or weight. And that's where we're picking the medication that will be most helpful for that person with that condition, opposed to an algorithm that is just strictly drug-based. So we're seeing a big uptick in the, uh, the GLP-1s, uh, glucagon-like 1% agonists, and we're also seeing an uptick in SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, the sodium co-transporter uh, inhibitors. So we're starting to see this; these drugs take the limelight and actually metformin is being pushed down. You know, now I know people are probably a little upset about that, what's going on. Metformin can still be used, don't, don't get me wrong, but it's no longer that first-line therapy that we all have to follow, and it can be background therapy with many of these other agents. You know, it's cheap, and some of these newer drugs are expensive, and I think that becomes a big problem for patients because it's the affordability and accessibility to, to these newer med, you know, medications that are out there. So exciting. I think, I think that's awesome. And I think that that really emphasizes the changes that we have. You know, I think it's nice that you said we can still use metformin. Uh, I think we should do a shout out to our managed care pharmacists that are going to take that. We can still use metformin and still have that as step therapy before anything else and mandate <laughs> metformin is used first. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, dear managed care pharmacists, it doesn't have to be first. So maybe we don't need that step therapy. So it's interesting that, and, and what I love is it almost reminded me of the guidelines, I don't know, like seven or eight years ago, where you had like the four different boxes and you went down, like the most recent version is just like metformin is this top level box. And then it kind of has a bifurcation. Uh, but now all of a sudden it's, it's a quadrification. I don't know if that's a real word. Yeah. It's the, it's the yeah. division of four, right? right. So you, you highlight ASCVD or, or cardiac arrest it's heart failure, which is still cardiovascular risk, but a different type of cardiovascular risk. It is chronic kidney disease. And then you call that obesity specifically. And I think that that's a big change as well um, mm -hmm. because there's always been a unique chapter on obesity, but it hasn't been at the forefront 
and I do think it's important that we highlight it um, from that community pharmacy perspective, we are getting inundated with people coming in and trying to get trisepatide and some of these other agents for weight loss off-label, and that's creating a lot of shortages, a lot of issues. So it is good to know that the ADA is giving uh, emphasis on that as a, a decision point at the beginning. Um, but, you know, how do you differentiate between those four? Because, you know, when I think about heart failure and ASCVD, there's a Venn diagram overlap with those. When I think about obesity and cardiovascular disease, there's a Venn diagram overlap. Yet we're telling providers that they have to bifurcate into a singular choice within these four options. Like, how do you, how do you pick within those four choices? And then how do you find that balance when somebody might have overlapping diseases? Yeah, you know, and actually, I, I don't think it's that complicated. I think it is pretty straightforward because really, you know, very simply stated from the cardiovascular as, aspect of this is, did, has this person that we're going to be treating, have they had some type of a cardiovascular event? So have they had a stroke or have they had, you know, a heart attack already, which if they have, obviously they're, you know, ASCVD risk right there. So right there, that qualifies them for being put on a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 with proven cardiovascular benefits. So I do want to say that because not all of the agents have proven cardiovascular benefit. That's a different conversation for a different time. But, um, you know, we really have to look at which are the ones that have that labeling by the FDA in, in, in their indication. Uh, but the other thing too is then, okay, maybe they haven't had a heart attack or stroke, but they're at risk for it because they have high blood pressure, they smoke, they're overweight, they're, you know, uh, getting, getting older in years, 55 or older. So those are the high risk people. And once again, they're going to benefit from them. And I think what's very interesting, and I know, you know, this was actually addressed earlier uh, this year, but one of the things is no longer is the ADA the sole entity for recommending GLP-1s and SGLT-2s. Right now, if we look at it, the Kidney Foundation, the Kidney Foundation is really supporting both of these classes of drugs. And even the Stroke Foundation, the American Heart Association, the cardiologists. So we're looking at other organizations that are supporting the use of these drugs in people with diabetes. And my, one of my favorites is from the Stroke Foundation. They're saying it doesn't matter what the A1C is, anyone who has is at high risk for stroke should be put on a GLP-1, irregardless, irregardless of what their A1C. Now, granted, their data and evidence is adding that to metformin, um, but now we have more options with this new algorithm that just, just came out. So I think it's, it's pretty clear cut on who gets what. And with, as you mentioned, obesity is a big issue right now. It's a very, and no pun, pun intended there, uh, but, <laughs> you know, it is something that we have to uh, deal with. And if we don't tackle the obesity, there's going to be so much other chronic illness that we're going to really have a failing healthcare system worse than what we have right now. You know, I think we will. And it, it's scary because we've seen so many people initiate uh, some of these medications off-label, mm -hmm. good or bad, right? Like, Providers have the opportunity to write things off-label. That is their, their uh, jurisdiction and their ability, and sometimes it, it works out really well. Uh, managed care entities also have their jurisdiction to drive down costs and make sure things are on-label, and I think that those are butting heads, and unfortunately, pharmacies are in the middle of that spot right now. What 
anecdotally, what we've been seeing though, is that patients are willing to jump on these medications to lose the weight fast, mm-hmm. which is great. But, but when you use those medications for weight loss, it's, it's short term. It's not the long term weight loss. That is all about lifestyle modification. And I feel like that's losing out on the overarching story. Um, one of our, our, our dear friends, it's actually my, my daughter's uh, godmother, uh, she's an emergency room physician. And she said a lot of her colleagues are now on some of these medications to lose weight and she'll go in and their breakfast is Skittles. And she's mm-hmm. like, what are you doing? And they're like, mm-hmm. I've lost weight. I feel great. I can eat Skittles. No, you can't. Yes, you can eat Skittles. I have nothing against Skittles, but that's not breakfast. And that's not, that's not a way to come off the medication. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's one of the balances that we have to find is how do we encourage overarching lifestyle modification when, when we have these opportunities to give people quick wins, which is a good, you know, we look at, at Coder's change management and, and you're changing someone. Coder does organizational change, but we can look at it as a person. That's that sense of urgency. That's the first step, right? Uh, you just had a heart attack. You would be like, I get it but we want to provide quick wins. And I think weight loss doesn't often provide quick wins. And that's where some of these medications can provide benefit because someone can see a quick win. You know, so in your, in your practice, how do, you, how do you continue to emphasize lifestyle with patients that yeah. for them, their new lifestyle is a medication? You know, and Jake, I'm glad you brought that up because part of this new document that came out in October heavily focused on lifestyle. And it was, they actually have a section in there. It's called the importance of 24 hour physical behaviors for type two diabetes. So like you're talking about Skittles for breakfast. Well, you know, yeah, you can have Skittles for breakfast but that's not a healthy breakfast. And this is where, you know, as pharmacist, I really support the use of team-based care. And this is where I would refer to a dietitian. You know, let's talk about healthy eating and healthy behaviors. And the dietitians are much better at this than I am, but they now have data that shows even the order in which you eat your food. So kind of, you know, starting out with your fiber first to fill you up, followed by protein, followed by your your starchy carbohydrates. So saving your starchy carbohydrates for last actually delays the spike in glucose. So, you know, that fiber, and if we think about it, and I know you and I have talked about this before, you know, I always say all of these drugs really mimic a lifestyle. So let's talk about the GLP-1s. They mimic small, frequent meals. They really do. And they mimic small, frequent meals filled with fiber. So if we start with fiber and we slow the uptick of our sugar, then, and we save the carbohydrates for less, meaning the Skittles, they're not going to spike as much. So, you know, you can have your Skittles, but have them at the end, just have some prunes or apples or something healthier first, oatmeal, you know, something like that first. So really the dietitians can talk much more about that, but you know, it's not even just diet because so many people in my practice one of the biggest things, you know, and as you know, and folks may know, I work in a underserved community clinic. So these are people who are underinsured, have no insurance. Some people are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet. Stress, stress raises blood glucose. So how do you work with these people? Pharmacists, we're all under stress. 
How do you manage your stress, your coping skills? How do you get you know, your physical activity in there? How do you get quality sleep? We spend an awful lot of time talking about quality sleep. How much sleep are you getting? You know, is it, we're looking not only duration, but uninterrupted sleep. You know, some people that get less than six hours of sleep, that is actually an obesity risk factor. That's going to raise your glucose. That's going to raise your blood pressure. So I applaud the ADA and EASD because of the fact that they included this piece on lifestyle. And once again, lifestyle is the cornerstone. Medication is always added to lifestyle. So something, again, pharmacists can do is work with many of their patients on, you know, lifestyle, healthy eating, sleep, physical activity, strength training, stress and coping mechanisms. Uh, but then at the same time, you know, maybe refer them to a lifestyle coach or a diabetes care and education specialist. So, you know, they don't have to manage everything. That's where this team comes in. And maybe we do send them off to, you know, again, a lifestyle coach. And one last thing I just want to share just to bring home the lifestyle point, and it was just published, and I apologize, I can't remember if it was JAMA or Lancet, but um, this is just follow-up data to other studies. And it showed that actually mindfulness and something as simple as yoga or Tai Chi can lower A1C 0.7%. That's actually more than some of the DPP-4 inhibitors that are out there, you know, like citagliptin or um, saxagliptin. So yoga versus, you know, again, a DPP-4 inhibitor, you get a better effect from, from yoga. And it has much more balance on your brain and your heart and overall well-being. So again, I, you know, this, this lifestyle is still the cornerstone. And I, I think we need to stress more than ever um, for people to actually learn how to manage it. So you are full of uh, puns today. So if anybody <laughs> missed that last one, she talked about the balance while talking about the benefit of yoga. So, so she's just uh, on a roll, <laughs> you know, there, there's another thing, like there's a wonderful book out there called Why We Sleep, and it talks about the benefit of sleeping. And, and there's an analogy that they use, and it's almost like while you sleep, uh, imagine like your brain is a, a city, Chicago. And then as you sleep, all of the skyscrapers shrink down to allow people to come through and pressure wash the streets to clean it. That's what sleep does for our brains. It kind of shrinks a little bit and kind of cleans everything out. Um, that sounds really wonky, but I love that analogy. It stuck with me and it just, it highlights the benefits of sleep. Uh, regardless though, the biggest take home for me from what you just said is that I should have my sweets at the end of eating, which therefore you just encourage dessert. Uh, so I'm going to stick with that as like your message that you just shared with us. Um, small so, amount, uh, so, small amount though. <laughs> But she still said it, everybody. So like we can have dessert. Yes. So what I'd like to do is just take a, uh, a little commercial break here, talk about the impact. And when we come back, let's talk about the, the role of insulin with everything else to kind of round out this conversation on the pharmacotherapy for, for persons with diabetes. Want more diabetes education? CE Impact's memberships give you more than 60 hours of new CE every year on diabetes and other topics that help you connect your learning to practice. Go to ceimpact.com to learn more. All right, so welcome back. We're joined with uh, Sue Cornell, and we're going to continue our conversation around the, the optimization of, of diabetes care for persons with diabetes uh, and, and really around the, the role of insulin. So, 
you know, we spent the first half of the podcast talking about some of our other agents and, and the role of how we choose drugs and initiation therapy. So with all that said, you know, where does, where does insulin fall within all of this, Sue? Yeah, excellent question, Jake. And, you know, really on this brand new uh, guideline algorithm, it's not even on there. You know, we, you know, going back, you, you earlier mentioned about how maybe about six, seven, eight years ago, there was those, you know, lines of here, you go here to do this, you go here to do this based on the patient, the pillars, the pillars, and insulin was a pillar and suddenly insulin was no longer a pillar and insulin slowly has faded from the guidelines. Now, with that said, obviously a couple of things we have to be realistic about. If you have a person with diabetes who's A1C upon diagnosis is greater than 10. No drug combination, at least that we know of at this moment in time, is going to really get them to goal. So they're going to need insulin along with maybe another drug. Now, true, I know metformin has been commonly used, but this is where, again, insulin with a GLP-1 agonist has been studied and proven you know, very beneficial. And by adding insulin with a GLP-1, the GLP-1 will promote weight loss so the weight gain that we normally see from insulin is somewhat negated. So yeah, when higher percentages of A1C, we're going to see that. The other thing too, is people have had diabetes for many, many years where, where medications is just not working and the disease is progressing. You know, they're going to be candidates for insulin, specifically basal insulin as well. But really in type two, we're starting to see that some of these newer drugs are having better benefits. You know, one of the things we know about insulin is it's cardiovascular neutral, which is good. It doesn't cause any cardiovascular problems because I know that was a concern about 10 years ago, but right now they're neutral. We've proven, but there's no benefit as far as cardiovascular safety. And when you compare that to, again, the GLP-1s and the SGLT-2s that have cardiovascular safety, that's the reason why they're being used first. But let's say we add on insulin and even, even within these guidelines, the guidelines say the first injectable should be a GLP-1, but if that's not maximizing control, now we're going to add on a basal insulin to the GLP-1. And if that's still not working, then we're going to add bolus insulin. Um, and of course, of course, in type 1 diabetes, they have to have insulin, basal bolus therapy, uh, be it you know, delivered by an insulin pen or syringe or via, you know, simulated through a pump. But bottom line is anyone in type one is still gonna use insulin. So insulin's not going away, but you know, yeah, some of its usage is going down. Now let's go back to, again, my patient population. I work in an underserved community clinic. And if I have free samples in my refrigerator and cupboard, life is good, people are happy. But sometimes the cupboard's empty and the refrigerator's empty. So they're going to have to go to the pharmacy and actually get a prescription. And some of the insulins, of course, are less expensive than others. And now with the insulin pricing, it's more affordable. You know, so insulin tends to be more affordable. So once again, even though it's not part of that algorithm that we're looking at, we have to do the wrong thing the right way. And that means, you know, getting, getting medication into the hands of people who maybe can't afford some of these preferred medication. I think it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's not necessarily doing the wrong thing. It's just, you know, it's getting the best option for the patient with all factors considered, right? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. We, we right. get them the best care that they deserve um, that, that fits within the, the patient-specific characteristics, right? Because if we say 
you have to be on a GLP-1 and your copay or your cost is 300 a month, and then that person can't afford food, we actually haven't done a due diligence for the patient, right? right? If exactly. You know, there, there's data out there to say that for every like $100 increase in someone's median rent, homelessness increases like 20% or some obscene amount of amount. And so if we're going to sit here and say, do I, do I send the patient home with a prescription that's going to make them unafford their home or not? Like, so it's not that it's a bad option. It's the best option for the person. Uh, yeah. and, and I just, I emphasize that because of your patient population that you care for, the things that we see down here in Alabama, a patient is eligible for Alabama Medicaid if they earn less than $831 a month and have no more than $2,000 in assets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that means you can't have a month fund, which is what we tell everybody to do for financial well, well-being. Um, and so I think it's important to think about all the factors that go around the social determinants of health, the health equity for that person. So I think it's wonderful that there's an emphasis on making insulin more affordable yes. from that patient copay perspective. I think that's it's great. And I think it's, it's important to note that we can still use insulin for the population, uh, for patients, and, and it works well. I think we would be remiss if we didn't call out the value of glucagon for those on bolus insulin and NPH. Uh, Sue and I were talking about this before we started the, the recording, but you know, this is another area for a great pharmacy-driven intervention or something for our prescribers to recognize as an order set. When we think about the risk of hypoglycemia and the cost and the burden on a patient to go to the hospital, bolus insulins and NPH, to, to Sue's point earlier, uh, will definitely do that. And so making sure that they have glucagon on hand and, and advocating for good glucagon coverage, I think, is a good thing to do as well. Yeah, and if I can add to that, the other thing, too, is as pharmacists, we need to make sure our patients know how to use these devices. So, you know, going to the glucagon, it's not necessarily the patient who's going to be using it. It's going to be someone else. So, you know, they need to make sure they have a support system. So if it's a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, uh, you know, uh, anyone, a caregiver, that person needs to know how to use the glucagon. So when we are dispensing it at the pharmacy and we're giving the patient their bolus insulin, their MPH insulin, and the glucagon, we want to make sure that the, you know, the support system knows how to use the glucagon because the patient's going to be on the floor and that's where the glucagon is going to have to come in. I think that's, that's a, a really good point. And it also emphasizes making sure you know the weight and the dose for the person because sometimes it's weight driven and getting, ensuring that the right dose is provided, I think is also uh, crucial. Well, Sue, I think we've had a, a riveting conversation. I hope everybody has enjoyed this by their proverbial fireside. Uh, and, and I've enjoyed getting to dive deep into the changes in diabetes pharmacotherapy with you. Uh, before we wrap up today, do you have any last uh, advice or thoughts that you want to share? I just believe pharmacists are in a unique position, specifically community pharmacists, you know, to really help people manage diabetes. They can see things that the prescribers miss. They can see things that are not brought up with the prescribers because of that personal relationship. So let's maximize it and really, really help people with diabetes. That's perfect. So thank you again for, for joining us. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, I don't uh, actually remember Jeff's catchphrase that he uses at the end of every episode. And so with that, I'll just thank everyone for, for being here and we look forward to you joining us uh, next week with our next episode. Thanks all. 
Thanks for sharing the newest information and giving us a preview of what is to come for the diabetes management recommendations in 2023. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, sign up today to get CE every week just for listening in. See the show notes for more information. We'll talk to you next week on the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast.